The battle for Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine has had Ukrainian and Russian forces locked for more than eight months in a bloody stalemate. Thousands of lives have been lost with soldiers engaging in trench warfare resembling the battles seen in World War I. After months of barely any movement, the UK Ministry of Defense says that last week that Russia has re-energized its assault. This, just as Ukraine is expected to launch a long-awaited spring counteroffensive. This is what months of fighting has done to Bakhmut. In recent days, more neighborhoods in the embattled city have fallen to Russia, according to Moscow. It claims most of Bakhmut is under its control. Before the war, around 70,000 people lived here, a mining hub strategically located in eastern Ukraine. It's believed there are only 3,000 residents now. The head of Russia's private mercenary Wagner Group has called Bakhmut a meat grinder. Ukrainian forces have described, quote, unprecedented bloody battles. But both Russia and Ukraine have suffered heavy losses. Thousands of soldiers have died in the more than nine months that the battle for Bakhmut has raged. Moscow has been resupplying its front lines as fast as they lose people. But both sides are refusing to back down. For the Kremlin, the capture of Bakhmut would provide a long-awaited battlefield victory, a symbolic show of strength. It could also open up the way for a Russian advance towards major Ukrainian cities in the region. Slavyansk and Kramatorsk, and in turn, control of the entire Donetsk area. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has repeatedly said Ukraine will continue to hold Bakhmut. For now, it appears the months-long stalemate remains the longest and bloodiest battle in Russia's war in Ukraine, and it shows little sign of changing. We're joined now by Ben Hodges. He's a former commanding general of U.S. forces in Europe, and he's a long-time and close watcher of the war. He's spoken to us on DW many times. Thanks very much for, for, for coming in to, to the studio, uh, General Hodges. So we've just seen where things stand in Bakhmut at the moment. Like, you know, with all of your military experience, when you look at how the battle there has kind of descended into, you know, people talk about these comparisons with the First World War. Were you surprised by that, 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 that it degenerated into this, this kind of grim picture of warfare? Uh, the part that surprises me is how the Russians have continued to feed people into this meat grinder. Uh, that doesn't seem to have obvious strategic importance or even operational importance for them. Bakhmut is important not because it's Bakhmut, but because it has allowed the Ukrainian general staff to buy time to prepare for their counteroffensive, which I think comes in uh, a month or two. Um, so the Russians have obliged them by continuing to push troops into it and Ukrainians, I think, realized months ago that they could probably stop them without having to divert the armored forces that they need for their counteroffensive. So when you can step back from it, don't think about what's happening on each of these terrible streets, this destruction that we watch every day. Step back from it. It's actually a good thing for the Ukrainian general staff that they have been able to stop Russian forces there. 
But the Ukrainian side also is said to have lost a lot of people there. I mean, what, what, the, the, this is, the, you know, there's this, this kind of technical word used as sort of attrition, yeah? But these are people. They've lost people there as well. You feel that from a kind of a planning purposes that the, 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 that was an acceptable loss? Well, again, if you, if you keep your eye on what's, what's at stake here, Ukraine is fighting for its life. Uh, and I think the Ukrainian general staff knows that Crimea is the decisive terrain of this war, that Ukraine will never be safe or secure as long as Russia occupies Crimea. Ukraine will never be able to rebuild its economy as long as Russia occupies Crimea and can block access to Azov Sea, all the ports on the Black Sea. So Ukrainian general staff has figured out they have got to get Crimea. And I think they, they intend to get it this year. In order to get it, you have to isolate it first and then bring up long-range precision capability that can hit Sevastopol, the airbase at Saki, the logistics hub at Zhankoi, and other facilities on the Crimean Peninsula to make it untenable. You could kill every Russian soldier within 200 kilometers of Bakhmut. That would not change the strategic situation. But you liberate Crimea, that changes everything. And so I think the general staff realize that they were able to, I mean, nine months, the Russians have still not captured Bakhmut. Nine months. Um, and I think the general staff figured that out. And so like, okay, we're going to put what we have to here so that in the long run, we're able to achieve the decisive effect, the end of this war. So that's a long answer to your question. Is it acceptable? Of course, every life matters. These are humans, but these are soldiers. This is the nature of war. And they're there doing a task that will lead to a decisive outcome for Ukraine. So let's now kind of connect these things, yeah? So you say that the Crimea is really the ultimate objective. As you said, we're expecting this counteroffensive to begin in the next month or two, you said. What do you ex anticipate? What are the steps, if Crimea is the goal, what are the steps that Ukraine, you expect them to take in the early days of that offensive? So, um, it, you know, it has been referred to as a spring offensive for, for months. I don't know why people call it the spring offensive. I don't think it was ever going to be a spring offensive because the ground is still mud. And, and if, if you're launching an armored attack, you would like to have the best possible conditions, obviously, for, for trafficability. And plus, the general staff also needed time to, to train, to prepare these armored brigades. I think they have a lot more armored brigades than, than we know. Um, the Ukrainian general staff does a good job of protecting information better than we do, <laughs> obviously. Um, they have uh, a lot of their own tanks and armored vehicles, plus what they've captured from the Russians, and now plus what we, the West, have been providing the, from the German, uh, the German Bundeswehr, the UK, the US, and so on. They have been training and practicing how to penetrate Russian defenses, trench lines, obstacles, minefields, the so-called dragon's teeth, all of that. So I think when they're ready, when the conditions are set, that's trafficability, training, logistics in place, everything's in place, then they will pick they will pick one, two, or three places of this 900-kilometer front. They're going to pick two or three places in mass overwhelming combat power to penetrate to get all the way to Azov Sea, to break the so-called land bridge that connects Crimea to the rest of Russia. 
I think they'll leave the Kerch Bridge up for a while so that Russians who want to leave can leave. But then at some point, of course, when this is all done, they'll drop that bridge. But for now, what's important is to isolate it by breaking the land bridge. That, I think, is the objective of this counteroffensive. Now, what does it look like? It will be what we call combined arms, tanks, mechanized infantry, engineers that are necessary to clear the path, uh, artillery that's able to move and, and focus um, to protect this penetration, which may only be 10 or 20 kilometers wide. And um, the Ukrainian Air Force, which of course has been severely outnumbered from the beginning, but yet the Russians have never been able to get air superiority, which is, I think, a reflection not on, on math, but on their professional capability. So I anticipate that Ukrainian Air Force will play a key role over the next several weeks going after um, uh, Russian artillery headquarters, uh, air defense systems to help enable this attack. So it, this will be a joint combined attack focused on a narrow point that will penetrate. And then um, they'll, they'll develop it based on where, where they have success, they'll reinforce success. And I mean, you talk about penetrating. Talk about like the kind of defenses that the Russians will have, because the Russians have had time also yeah, to sure. kind of dig in to create defensive lines. Um, we've seen this sort of notion of trench warfare. They're also defensive. Like, describe the kind of defenses that the, the Ukrainians will need to get past and, yeah. and how they will need to do that. So, uh, like you and, and all of your viewers have been watching these videos of these trenches. You see pictures, satellite imagery of trenches and dragon's teeth and all that. So, uh, I don't want to be dismissive of that. It, it will be physically hard and dangerous. Uh, and it's in-depth. So potentially, depending on where the, the Ukrainians choose to attack, of course, they've got to cross the Dnipro River, um, which is another reason when you would like to make that as easy as possible or um, in terms of timing. Um, you've got to cross the river, and, and then they're going to encounter minefields, the dragon's teeth, which are these concrete sort of pyramid-shaped um, uh, obstacles, and then there'll be trenches. And with Russian troops in these trenches, with uh, old tanks, old anti-tank weapons that have been brought up, they can still shoot. They don't have to move, they can still shoot. So there will be a thick set of defenses that Ukrainians will have to penetrate. And it'll be two or three layers like that. And of course, the uh, Russians, if they're professional enough, they will have planned artillery to hit when Ukrainian forces do attack. So that's that's what the Ukrainians ha have to go through. Um, clearly, they have good intelligence on what's out there. I mean, you can see it. None of this is concealed. So they will uh, have made, uh, I would expect they will have made models of all of this, and everybody will be practicing their part. They've been doing it for months. They'll be doing it for months. Now, you say so. the, the goal is then to get to the Sea of Azov, yes. so across from Crimea. Um, from that point, I mean, there are various different opinions about, you know, the role of Crimea. You know, there are concerns that if, you know, in some quarters that if uh, Ukraine mounts, mounts a real uh, assault on Crimea, that this is one of the moments where Putin potentially draws the nuclear card. Um, what's your view on that? And, w you know, what would be their 
you know, if they get to that stage, see of Azov, what do they do next? Or is that a point where you start to negotiate? Is that a point where you feel like, okay, you've got Vladimir Putin in a place where he's weakened enough that you feel that Ukraine has a strong enough hand to negotiate? Talk me through a little bit of the scenarios and what you would expect. So uh, I will... Uh, Ukraine will never be safe or secure as long as Russia occupies Crimea. They will always be able to launch the next attack, whether it's in two, three, four years. So any any negotiation that leaves Russia in control of Crimea, automatically Russia has a huge advantage. The Black Sea Fleet still singing in Sevastopol, um, the Air Force operating from there, the logistics operating from there. So from a security standpoint, they have to get Crimea. From an economic standpoint, you know, Ukraine's economy is based on exporting grain, on rare earth materials. So even if um, Berdansk and Mariupol, the two big ports on, on the Azov Sea, were liberated or the Russians left them, gave them back as part of a negotiation, Ukrainians would never be able to do anything with it because Crimea still blocks access in and out of Azov Sea. Uh, and then, of course, Odessa is only 300 kilometers straight line distance from Sevastopol, so easy for the Russian Black Sea Fleet to continue to interdict traffic, commerce, whenever they want to, just like they're doing right now. The Ukraine is not able to export grain without the permission of Russia. So um, that's why the idea that somehow this would be a fa acceptable outcome for Ukraine, I think, is ludicrous. Now, um, I hear what you, you raised a valid point that people are concerned, oh, this is, you know, Crimea's something special here for uh, Putin, his reputation, all of that. Um, I think that it is extremely, extremely unlikely that Russia would use a nuclear weapon. Their nuclear weapons are really only effective when they don't use them because we continue to deter ourselves like, oh my God, they might use a nuclear weapon. Look how we all reacted or how many people reacted when they announced they were sending a tactical nuclear weapon that they might into Belarus. I mean, that was all over the press for a few days. That did not do one thing to change the ability of Russia to use that nuclear weapon. It was just their way of reminding us, oh, we have nuclear weapons because they know how we overreact to that. And I think the uh, Ukrainians, if they were hit, if Russia employed a tactical nuclear weapon against them somewhere in Ukraine, that <laughs> Ukrainians are not going to stop. They're going to keep fighting. And I think that the Russian general staff knows that. So it's like, oh, okay, we use a nuclear weapon. Ukrainians keep fighting. What next? My president has said it will be there will be catastrophic consequences for Russia if they use a nuclear weapon. President Xi has said, do not use a nuclear weapon. India has said, do not use a nuclear weapon. So I think that people around Putin also know that if, if there's going to be life after him, for them, he can't use a nuclear weapon. So, so that's what, because, yeah, I mean, Vladimir Putin, we assume that his highest interest of all is regime survival. Yes. Nothing tops that. Right. And this is the concern that, well, you know, if his very survival, the survival of his regime is at stake, then that's when he draws a nuclear card and he connects that in his mind potentially with Crimea. What you're essentially counting on is then the the people around him saying, sorry, sir, we're, we're not going down that road. Yeah, in fact, I would say his regime survival doesn't depend on Crimea. It depends on him making sure he can protect himself and yeah, of course it will be humiliating, 
Um, but I don't think he's Nero, you know, that's willing to burn it all down around him. Um, what he wants to make sure doesn't happen is that he gets drugged through Red Square the way, you know, Gaddafi did or Saddam Hussein or, or something like that. So um, I think that we, uh, I mean, this is a guy that sat on a 10 meter long table to avoid getting COVID from visitors. That doesn't sound suicidal to me. I think that he is actually much more rational than that. And we, but we have talked ourselves into, oh my God, he might use a nuclear weapon. And, and I think it is unfounded. And I'm talking about from the White House as well as many other Europeans. The, one, the ones who would actually feel the effect of it the most, Ukrainians as well as Eastern Europeans, are much less uh, afraid of it than are those of us who live much further away from it. Um, so just before we wrap up, um, so you've painted a pretty positive picture of, of what the Ukrainians can achieve in the next few months. There are still concerns about the Ukrainians not having the the, the support in terms of weapons that they need uh, to sustain this. Um, do they have what they need to do what you describe? Or are they already lacking things that they would need to do what you describe? They need two things. Number one, what they need is for the President of the United States, the German Bundeskanzler, the Prime Minister of UK, the President of France to say, we want Ukraine to win. The, there is no clear strategic outcome as laid out by the leaders of the West. We haven't said we want them to win. We've said we're with you for as long as it takes, which is an absolutely meaningless statement. Or we've said we want Russia to lose, which, and then you'll hear somebody say, well, they've already strategically lost. So none of this helps Ukraine. So um, my president needs to say our desired strategic outcome is this. They don't do that, and I think it's because they're concerned about nuclear. Um, I think China has a role in this somehow, and I think that the White House people are, are I don't know this doesn't sound right, but they're almost scared of winning. Like, what happens if Ukraine wins? They haven't, they can't control that. So that's what one thing Ukraine needs. And the second thing they need in terms of actual capability is long-range precision weapons. Uh, the ability to hit these places in Crimea. If they had the Atakams already, 300 kilometers, they could already have made, forced the Black Sea Fleet to leave Sevastopol, because that's 300 kilometers, that kind of precision. And the Black Sea Fleet is important only because it can launch cruise missiles against civilian targets. Um, otherwise, U Ukraine is going to win this thing. The speed with which it happens depends on us. But does Ukraine really have the, the the stamina to keep this going for potentially years? Because if we look at the political situation in the U.S., it's hard to look at the upcoming election and the positioning of some of the candidates there and think that the U.S. is going to increase its support in the future. We may have hit a high watermark. So I, I think you should ask, uh, do the Russians have the stamina to keep going? I'm not sure they do. There are not people rushing to join the Russian army, nobody want, no Russian wants to come to Ukraine because they see what happens. They're, they're, they're having to do all kinds of things to fill their ranks with people just to go into this meat grinder. So there is no enthusiasm, not for actually being there. Um, on the other hand, Ukraine is defending their country. They're fighting for their survival. And so we know from history that war is a test of will. It's obvious that the 
Ukrainian soldiers and Ukrainian people have much more will than do the Russian soldiers and Russian people. Uh, Russia's defense industry is in tatters. They clearly do not have the ability to keep providing endless amounts of stuff, which is why they're turning to Iran for drones. I mean, what does that tell you about Russia's defense industry? And they're hoping that China might somehow come up with ways to support them. But I think the Chinese are very reluctant to actually do that because they don't want the sanctions that would follow. So I would say that uh, uh, finally, to address your specific point, Senator Mitch McConnell, you saw him. He was at the Munich Security Conference back in February. And he stood up and said, hey, I'm here with a huge Republican delegation to remind everybody that the United States, including the GOP leadership, cares about Europe, NATO, and Ukraine. That's why we're here. Don't be confused by a few loudmouths that you hear on the far right. A few loudmouths, that means Donald Trump, um, you know. Donald Trump will not be the next president. And uh, even, um, obviously, his his biggest uh, challenger, um, the... Uh, DeSant- my, my Governor DeSantis. Yeah. That's right. And what did he do when, when Governor DeSantis made this idiotic comment that this is some sort of regional border dispute? He got killed by Republicans who said, you idiot, That's you have no idea what you're talking about. So I think I, I am much more confident that the U.S. Congress, in a bipartisan way, will continue to support this. But it, it doesn't have to go on for years. It, it could all end this year if the administration would say, we want Ukraine to win. And then, I mean, delivering... This war has been going on, obviously, since 2014. And Russia still only controls about 15% of Ukraine. Nine months in Bakhmut, they still haven't captured it. With all the advantages... They still don't have air superiority. They still haven't figured out a coherent command structure. The Black Sea Fleet does nothing except shoot missiles against fixed targets, apartment buildings. The the Russians have not been able to destroy one single train or convoy bringing equipment and ammunition from Poland. How how is that? In 14 months, they couldn't. They don't have the ability to destroy one train. So. All the th- indicators I see, the only advantage that they have is they're willing to expend tens of thousands of lives pushing them into a meat grinder. That's not sustainable. All right. Ben Hodges, thanks for speaking to us. And, uh, yeah, we'll come back to you in the next couple of months and uh, see, see how, tell me how, wrong see how this is developing. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much.